Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Movie Mavericks. The Movie Mavericks Podcast. Movie Mavericks. Speaking of fucking long, uncut European cocks. The Movie Mavericks Podcast. Now for your hosts, Jason and Trevor. I can't wait. Hey, now everybody, welcome to a special episode of the Movie Mavericks Podcast. I'm going to send you over to Mr. Octopenis, Jason Rugard. He will tell you what we're talking about today. And that's for your eyes only, sir. <laughs> and uh, we're talking about oh, yeah. Mr. James Bond and... Roger Moore's sci-fi adventure in the character Moonraker. Trevor picked this as a retro. We're back looking at it this week. The 1979 James Bond film. Interesting story, I feel, on this. I was going to go catch The Spy Who Loved Me, the retro screening they had recently at the Cinemark screenings. Mm -hmm. And you said you wanted to watch this instead, and I said, screw it. I'm going to stay home and watch this. And I got to tell you, I think I may have enjoyed this, though, better because I... I don't remember oh, for really, sure. I, I don't remember liking Moonraker all that much as a kid. It, it was kind of mm. dull to me and dated and, and not really fancy in any sort of way, which it's still not. And it's still all those things. But I really enjoyed it this time. What do you think? Yeah, this was, uh, especially after the year we've had going to, to the cinema, this was just a breath of fresh air. It was just all about fun. And this is what, to me, this is kind of what James Bond should be like. Daniel Craig ones are cool too, you know, in that they're. Uh, they're dark, they're kind of brooding and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, one or two of those, and I'm good on that. I, I really would like to get back to some fun stuff again uh, with Bond. Uh, something like, well, something from like around this this era, you know, like Moonraker. And this is a a big movie. What got me about this is how easily this stands the, the test of time. Perhaps not special effects-wise or acting-wise, right, or dialogue or any of that, but certainly story-wise. This is something you could take... And they could very easily make uh, today. I agree with you on that. And I agree with your earlier point when you said that we're pretty much done with the Craig type of Bonds, even though he's coming back now for the 25th 
film in the series. But at that point, when they went to the Craig, we had had a steady diet of these formulaic James Bond films. The fun was in the formula in a lot of ways. And now we've been fed since 2006. And by the time this next one comes out in, say, 2019, if not 2020, it'll be almost 15 years of a certain type of Bond film that is not very fun. I think it's time to go back to these type of movies. I really enjoy this because of the formula. And I wish Craig well, wouldn't be right mm-hmm. in this kind of thing. And and Moore doesn't get a lot of credit, which we'll go into later with uh, Siskel and Ebert. But in this, he's right. He's dead on on this. He's really in the he's role. Fantastic he, he's fantastic in this. He's in the pocket. The guy's in the fucking he pocket. He is clearly James Bond in this movie. And I, like you, didn't don't necessarily have fond memories of this. Didn't particularly remember it all that much, which is why I wanted to go back to it. And since it's such a grandioso bond, you know, it's one of the big ones. And of course, one of the biggest earning bonds, which is interesting. You bring up the the bonds before what we have now. And this was, this stood as the highest grossing bond until GoldenEye. I thought the, the, the Brosnan stuff was very fun, although it was far more slicker and updated. So I really think that I would love to have seen like a Moonraker type bond movie done in the 90s definitely but i would still like to see it today with what they can do nowadays you know could you imagine spending 200 million dollars on a bond movie like this well i mean there's all the the what ifs and the hunt I mean, at one point burt reynolds was even considered for bond right now sure. there's a, a screen test that right. josh brolin did for octopussy on youtube which is a, a hoot too because people are just terrible you realize this is not that easy of a thing to slip in and out of and to, to sell that you're this this guy so you got to give more credit there. Some of that there. stuff, though, has to be pandering and, and pushing things around, right? I mean, certainly when Daniel Craig was about to go out or was thinking about it, there was suddenly a long list of people they were looking at, and, and that almost kind of puts pressure on him to come back. You're comparing more in, in Brosnan's films, which are very similar for my, like with the, the style and the formula sure. and, and the funness, and, and Dalton's two were oh, yeah. much like the Craig, kind of setting the blueprint for the Craig. Those kind of exist in the same world. So I agree. And I always think it would have been fun if you could go back and see Pierce Brosnan originally taking over the role and doing like a view to a kill, just doing one right there and then having Dalton yeah. come in for two and then him coming back in and Goldeneye. But as is getting back to Moonraker, I think this one very, very underrated in the Roger Moore canon, which overall doesn't get much respect. This one was heavily influenced, though, by – the huge success of Star Wars, Close Encounters, and all these kind of things. It is billed as James Bond goes to space, but mm-hmm. he doesn't go to space until almost 90 minutes yeah, into a two-hour movie. And what is – I always thought, like, what is the Moon Raker? What does that stand for? Did you, were you I know. I kept trying to figure that out too. Like, I was like, what are they raking on the moon? What? What can, is? Can I give you my personal – How is this uh, working? My personal possibly enhanced theory on this? Sure. Meaning, I didn't come onto this by my own. This was in a deep thought process here. Was were <laughs> right. they trying to erase man's footprint on the moon and start all over? Well, no, they were trying to kill man on Earth. Why they not tiled it, Moonraker? They were gonna like wipe out man's existence ever. You know, even his his footprint on the moon. So they would like rake the the footprint, thus removing it. Removing our yeah, you know, one small step for man type thing. Wow, I don't know. Yeah. Was was Aronofsky deep, around when they wrote this script and stuff? Was he a, a consultant on this or something? <laughs> Somebody thought too much about a Roger Moore Bond. Film I too. guess that could actually be it. That actually sounds like the best thing I've heard about it. So I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. What do you think is the most 
underrated of the more Bond ones. You think it's Moonraker? Is it fair to say this movie's underrated? If if, in, if it, it is, the then whole I guess canon so. Because I think The Spy Who Loved Me is looks at as his high point. I think Octopussy is, which I think is the most overrated. So conversely, what do you think is the most overrated? Because I think Octopussy gets way too much praise, and this is overlooked. Because I personally overlooked it. A lot of these are throwaway of his, and so are Dalton's really. They're so one-off here. Yeah, it's, so I don't, it's hard to say. Because it was a huge hit when it came out, but with time it kind of has fallen away. Let's take a quick second let you guys listen to the trailer for this iconic Bond film. From the most exotic locations on Earth, Moonraker will transport you to another world. Trifle overpowering your scent. Holly was a warm girl with the right connections. Could this possibly be the moment for us to pool our resources? We would be better off working together. More excitement, more thrill, and guess who's dropped in for a bite? Jaws is back from Earth to the most spectacular adventure in space, Moonraker. It's out of this world. All right, and we're back. I think Bond after this falls into some of the dullest times in the 80s before they got more out of the role with Octopussy, A View to a Kill, For Your Eyes Only, kind of small and low-key and underwhelming and Guys like Stallone and Schwarzenegger and those action epics of the 80s were just making him marginalized as a, a franchise and a character. The formula didn't really need fixing. It just needed time to readjust, which it did. I'm kind of sad to know what happens in the next 10 years with this character and how it falls from grace. Because like you said, this was the highest grossing one action on this. It was six times greater than any other Bond film. So they spent $34 million in 1979, which equals right. around... $250 million today. It's still unbelievable money. I would agree. I mean, it's well, and they should have been right with you look at the, where movies were going and this is clearly where, and was a good play, right? Because they went right where they were going and they were actually pretty early in on the, on this whole deal of, uh, a big blockbusters, you know, before jaws, which in star Wars, which are looked at as, as the touchstones of, blockbuster entertainment these bond films go back and look at thunderball it, like adjusted it's made a billion dollars it's un, un fucking believable so these movies were seen worldwide this character was known worldwide it was before the anyone 60s knew what though was. but yeah even the early 70s before they started in the mid 70s when jaws hit these movies mm -hmm. were still doing gangbusters before then um, but yeah but they would have been had they continued on the same route they would have been probably bowled over you know you really needed a moonraker to stay relevant, right? It has it, to stay relevant. It, to, how relevant it is is that it has a disco version of its theme. <laughs> it really does. Hey, that's it's pretty awesome. relevant, man. Down at the discotheque, you can listen to that. I like to do the roller skates, the floors that light up, you know? You know somebody was roller skating backward to the James <laughs> you know Bond theme yeah. disco style. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I like that. Hot stuff, thought, right? yeah. 
How did you come to this Bond film? Did you watch? The, uh, did you come to this on television? Obviously, we didn't see this in theaters, but like, was this HBO for you? Was this home video? How did, how did you come to it? Right, uh, Thanksgiving, you know, the, the marathon, um, the Bond marathon. Yeah, I mean, that's how I I watched uh, the vast majority of this. I mean, of course, I wasn't alive when Moonraker came out. You were barely alive, maybe. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I was barely hanging in there. So, so yeah, I mean, the only way I saw uh, a lot of these was. Uh, the James Bond marathon, you know, and I loved Jaws, not the movie, but of course the, the bad guy in this movie as a kid, I thought he was like, he was like the the most awesome James Bond villain, uh, for whatever reason, I don't know, as a kid, I guess, just cause he, he was so big, you know, and he bites the, the line with his teeth. He's got the jaws, you know, and he's mean. And, uh, and then of course at the end of the movie, as I guess part of the comedy and fun of this movie, they, they, took that character and kind of turned him into a good guy and i don't know i like that it's a nice touch in this and uh of course you like this character everybody likes this character this guy stayed at comic cons for the rest of his life because of this this character uh this is a great villain in the it's the only returning bond film villain ever i can't think of another villain that ever showed up uh, besides blofeld of course who's like the lead guy but like henchman wise there was never a guy to show up for multiple bond films he, of course, does. And they waste no time reintroducing him in this movie at all. He's in the very first scene. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, that's the other thing I liked about this movie is that it feels like continuation to a degree more than a lot of the other Bond movies. It really feels like, and we're into James Bond again, you know, and they just go right the flow with it. Like you say, they have this Jaws character. He's just right in there, you know, fighting James Bond and stuff and really in kind of a throwaway opening. But it sets the tone and, and you know, kind of gives you the idea of who, what these characters embody, you know, what's going to come from the rest of the movie. And they do it very quickly. And, and in a, a very fun and funny way. I like a, a lot of the comedy, I think, works really well in this movie. I think so, too. And I think it's the perfect opening title sequence. Uh, I, I think it's extremely well executed. It's badass. With the, it, not only with the, <laughs> the space shuttle launching, you know, Holy Bond films shit. always uh, open up aboard a submarine or, or some sort of sure. like, you know, like some, yeah. some men working on something and, and things go wrong and it's a hijacking or a malfunction of some sort. Uh, this, is, of course, holds to those tropes. And having Jaws back in it, it just makes it that much funner. And it feels of a piece with the last one. It feels, like you said, more of a direct sequel than uh, most of the times, I, I think. And I think that it uses its space concept mm. well. And it's, ex- it's executed about as well as possible. Of course, it's campy, but it's not silly or like overly ironic. It's it's utilized pretty pretty well, and I like no, well, yeah. the concept of what the villain is trying to accomplish in mm-hmm. in some of these. Stuff. And tell me that this isn't a beautifully shot production. Yeah, I know. That's the, that's the other thing about it, you know, is that it's just the whole thing. You know, the action is fantastic. It's never once boring. You know, a lot of that goes, I think, to the direction. Cinematography is just is amazing. You know, and they go, of course globe trotting really uh around the world for this and it just looks freaking fantastic anywhere they go you know they choose great locations of course they have a fantastic uh bad guy here who has great layers and shit you know <laughs> well I, I, two things about that i think the bad guy is extremely compelling but his henchman is weak the asian guy who they get rid of very quick that's why i think they jaws is in this movie as well because they uh-huh. knew that they're their right hand guy was very weak, and they get—it's why he killed off midway. But is that James Lipton? 
of the inside the actor studio playing Drax. <laughs> Does that not seem like? <laughs> no, I always thought. I mean, it's Michael Lonsdale, right? Um, but I, I always thought that he was channeling H.G. Wells, or not H.G. Wells, good Lord, but um, Orson Welles, thank you. Yeah, I always thought that he was channeling Orson Welles. He sounds just like him. He kind of looks like him. I, I just can't get anybody but James. I just want him to go, tell me about your childhood, Mr. Vaughn. <laughs> <It's like, laughs> and then you went and did this. <laughs> yes, I did. Did you start acting at a very young age? Uh, you know what's interesting about this particular Bond movie, and I guess all of them have the, the the fact that Bond is smart. But if you think about it, Bond is basically as smart as a NASA astronaut, and has like the G-force tolerance of an elite spacewalker in this movie. Yeah. It makes no sense. And this is one of the the well, one of the few James Bonds around this era. Maybe I don't think it's the first one, but one of the few that I can remember where the. The female is actually really essential, and she's not just some sex object, but she's super smart. Like I can see them as a couple in this really well. Like she has, she holds her own, so to speak, and she's kind of like very much like not interested in him. And it, it gave me very much uh, the same impression as like Mission Impossible Two with Tom Cruise playing against uh, you know Thandi Newton in that. Well, I like the comparison there. I, and I do love uh, Lois Childs in this movie who yes. plays Dr. Goodhead. And I always thought that she would have made uh, – I, I love saying that. I uh, laugh every time they say her name. I, it's like you know, Dr. I, I, Goodhead. It's like, oh, okay. It's, it's like, fantastic. Love it. Her agent's like, oh, you got a Bond film except the, it's going to be called Dr. Yeah, Goodhead. Right. Um, but uh, <laughs> I think that she would have made a fantastic Lois Lane in the Christopher Reeve Superman movies. I always thought that she would have done a great job. Could you have seen her as that? Yeah, I could have. Uh, she's a, she has a, she's a strong presence on the screen. And she's very um, very pretty in her day, you know. Yeah, and her voice is fantastic. I'd easily see her standing opposite Superman. This movie's got some great little bits in it too. I love when Drax tells his henchmen to make sure some harm comes to Mister Bond. That's such a classic <laughs> villain line, you know. And it's so uh-huh. dastardly. You just go, ooh, what a bad guy there. Like the fact that NASA has people on standby to go up in a shuttle with guns and like suits that they would fly around in. And so does this guy, like he has his own guns and they have a whole space battle. It's just people shooting at each other. Like there's no, it's like the cheapest star Wars knockoff you could ever come up with. And it's fucking awesome. Dude, those guys were it ready just to works. roll. Yeah. People are knocking each other. They're flying off in space. Oh, it's so fucking dumb but it just it works with the music and again i think they were just going for pure fun throughout a lot of it instead of like dramatic you know any sort of dramatic intent of like oh no people are actually dying or you know the world's actually in danger i mean even when it comes down to them shooting down uh you know the the poison i guess it's that they've shot off that's going to enter the atmosphere and they shoot those pod things up it's always evident that they're going to get them all it's never in doubt obviously and you mentioned the guys that were ready to go into space and how uh outlandish that is but i mean is that any more outlandish than bond wearing a tuxedo in rio i mean good luck with that heat sir (laughs) good luck with that heat i mean the musical key code for his entry is the theme for contact in, in close encounters well they do just know how to like fly the ships and stuff never seen the stuff before but they they get right up in there they know how to fly it they know how to flip all the buttons and everything it's like what do you do and no one i love that no one questions them 
They've only they, people. These people have been training for how long to fly these ships to run this program to to be able to get up there, you know, going through the, the motions and stuff. And they suddenly new faces and no one questions it. Let's let me let's take, take a, a break, break and let, let's get, let, cause you're, you're getting ramped up over there. So we're going to calm you down and let Trevor and, uh, and I do this really listen to Siskel and Ebert talk about basically rip apart Roger Moore as bond and, uh, and his bonds. And we'll be right back with you. Why do audiences all over the world keep lining up for every new James Bond adventure? Other heroes have been in a lot of movies. I think the record is probably held by Tarzan. It's followed by series characters like Charlie Chan and Sherlock Holmes. But those were heroes in low-budget, quickie movies that opened and closed in a few weeks. James Bond has always gone first cabin. <laughs> I think maybe in those two scenes you get a hint of why James Bond has managed to survive all the gimmicks, all the secret organizations, all the would-be killers and lovers and villains, and all those people that want to control the world. I think it's because of his sense of humor, of the charisma that he takes into a situation and the self-possession that he has with all those strange things happening around him all the time. The Bond pictures have always been a little ridiculous. I mean, how many megalomaniacs are there who want to control the world? But James Bond always knew they were a little ridiculous, and because he kept his cool and kept his sense of humor, the movies were more than thrillers. They were an exercise in Bond's style, and I think that's what people reacted to was the style that Bond brought to these situations. Great style. I can think of three other things. Mm -hmm. uh, one is, you know, Paul and Kale wrote that book of criticism called kiss kiss bang bang those words summing up the essence of movies sex and violence well these films have a lot of kissing and a lot of uh, gunplay <laughs> and uh, it's marvelous the other thing is chase pictures these are chase pictures and they're very well crafted a lot happens along the chase we shift locales from land to sea and we get different villains along the way the bad big bad guy has lots of henchmen the third thing and it's why any product lasts so well for a long time why you buy the same dishwashing liquid year after year mm -hmm. it's because of quality control and you know in the bond films that you're going to get good looking stunts good looking women uh, and a great looking bond and <laughs> that's uh, that quality control is very important. I think important. there's one thing you're leaving out and that's the gimmicks. Right? We're analyzing here and criticizing the three guys who played Bond seriously and is there really any doubt Connery is smooth and strong a man's man and a woman's man. Lazenby is a non-entity by comparison he doesn't cut through the camera at all all he is now is an answer to a trivia question. As for <laughs> Roger Moore he's too prissy too supercilious too smug for my taste. I think most men find him to be sort of a fop and a dandy and I think he's maybe too pretty to be attractive to women. He just isn't rugged enough to convince me that he's a secret agent. Let me put it another way. In his chase scenes, I don't think Roger Moore ever wants to get his nice suit jacket dirty. But I think Sean Connery does. He likes being scruffy and elegant, brave and fashionable. He likes that dirt on that great tuxedo. He could kill and make love in the same afternoon. He's James Bond. Roger Moore is not. I agree with you on Sean Connery. There will only be one Sean Connery, and he made the role in the first place, and mm -hmm. we still identify with him. Yes. I think if Robert De Niro went on to All in the Family, people <laughs> would still miss Carol O'Connor okay. as Archie Bunker. You know what I mean? I know what you On the mean. other hand, I think you're being too hard on Roger Moore. I think when I first saw him, I said, well, he's not Sean Connery. I don't see him as James Bond. Yeah. He's growing into the role. And also, the early Bond pictures were set closer to the earth, closer to reality. And the later Roger Moore Bond pictures have all of these special effects around them in such a way that I think he has to be kind of distant. So it's kind of one of the jokes is that his tuxedo never gets ruffled. So I think Moore is getting better, and I would look forward to the next Moore picture while still agreeing that Sean Connery is the first and probably only in our hearts James Bond. Okay, and I think it's because I think, I think he plays a tougher guy, and I think that's what some of this world uh, requires. That's what I think. Come on, that was harsh. Don't you think that 
for whatever reason, Siskel has uh, only love for Connery in the role, and I think that Moore does just fine here. And like I said, I think he's in the pocket in this one, and it perhaps, if not his his greatest outing as Bond, is up there in the higher rungs of the series for for me. Yeah, I mean, I've never really had a problem with the other James Bonds, I guess you know. But to be fair, I, I mean, when you look back, it's really between Sean Connery and Roger Moore, right? They've done the most movies, haven't they? Yeah, they owned the role for the longest. Although Craig now is creeping up on that that title. Oh, but he has quite a few. No, he's got a lot more to go. I just mean time wise and owning. I mean, the he's role. he's going to be one more. Oh, time wise, yeah, but but certainly not movie wise. I mean, you're talking about more taking it over in '71 and giving it up in '85 was his last one. So that's about what we're at now with Craig. So I mean, you're talking about ownership of a role and that you're really mm-hmm. luckily he was young when they when they got him and the character is kind of being able to grow. But tell me that. But in that best... time, they made like ten movies, and in this, this the Daniel Craig ones were coming up on the fifth. So it's like, of course, well, um, you know, MGM to... went through the whole bankruptcy and shit. So which obviously had a lot of problems. problems. Yeah. I think one of the best sequences in this movie of the non-action sequences is the hunting scene. And it's got that a bit of unexpected comedy up front, which which ends with like, and it, you know, when it's got that intense chaos at the end when the dogs are chasing oh down that lady, God. which is a hard moment. But it's so beautifully shot. I mean, that was a moment like he, where I was like, oh my God, halfway in horror because it works so well with the music yes. and with the way they shot it. And the other half of me was like, oh my God, this is so amazingly beautiful. This is... Like, how is this in this movie? It's fantastically shot. It, that, that's a moment that's actually um, like the omen. I'm like, and I love this that in this movie. Like, by the way, James Bond, you know, what a fucking asshole in a lot of ways, right? Because he knows right there, right before that happens, actually, he, they both know, right? And it's so obvious they both know. Well, they both, like, they know that they both want to kill each other. You know, they both, they know that the, whose side they're on and who's doing what and whatnot. And You're talking about Bond and Drax, of course. Right. And it's just so obvious, but he just allows like these, these women and these people, he just leaves them after using them and then outing them in many ways, uh, to Drax just leaves them there. And of course they're going to get killed, but he never like follows up on it. He never worries about it. Stay in the office. They're dispensable, you know, and why I, I will never understand. This is one of those those movies where it's almost worse than the bad guy explaining his evil plan right before he kills the good guy because he just doesn't kill him. Like, what's stopping him from killing James Bond? He was one of the a, worst offenders. Is he was movie. about to have. He put the guy in a tree to shoot James Bond. Why didn't he just shoot him? He's standing right there. <laughs> like, it would be unsporting. I understand it. Yeah, what is going on? Why don't they just kill him? They have no problem killing other people. Just turn the dogs loose on Bond. I, it's so lost on me. But that's part of the, the fun silliness. Uh, you know, in contrast to how stupid it is, um, it is played off in kind of a, a fun way. And they do a lot of things like the dog chase right after to get you on a different track to not thinking about stuff. You know. Because <laughs> that is an intense sequence that starts with a little bit of comedy and then ends with that dark moment. And you go, wow, that's when the movie to me goes, oh, you're a real movie now. You're trying to act like there are consequences, even though you just showed me that it was basically oh, yeah. a walking cartoon. And you have the talkative back. All the tropes are present here. I mean, you have the guys. This is still the period of the Bond villains where all the henchmen had matching uniforms. 
I love the, all the yellow mat. Like, where did right. you all get these? Who fitted one you of my, shit? One of my favorite parts is when he when he comes upon uh, at the end when he comes upon Drax's lair out there in the jungle, and it's the girls and stuff, and they make him fight the the big bow the python thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, what is going on? This is so. It, it's both the dumbest thing I've ever seen and the most amazing thing I've ever seen all at the same time. And that kind of sums up that movie to me. I love the cable car uh, action sequence, um, which has a hysterical ending and poor Jaws just can't, doesn't seem to be able to kill Bond. That whole sequence right there, I, I think is really dated. I don't like that sequence in the no? movie. It, no, I don't like the cable car sequence. I liked That's my... it. I was uh, pleasantly surprised that it, that it still worked. I thought for me. This was the Spielberg Bond film, you know, quasi. This was the one he was angling to make. He wanted, after the clout he had gotten with mm-hmm. Close Encounters, they said, what do you want to do next? He said, a Bond film, because everybody wants to do this. And he was angling to do it. And it would have been so much different with Spielberg behind the camera. And with Lewis Gilbert there, who this was the last film. Well, it would have been era. really amazing. Even though this is extremely... Mm-hmm cut and paste in terms of static camera but it's crisp it's it's observant all the details are present you don't mm-hmm. you know where to look you're not you remember where things are you remember details and spatial relevance and i, I think it's extremely professional it's it's like the it's professionalism at the highest order of big budget hollywood you know i say hollywood and quotes mm-hmm. and this was made in london uh, but just that kind of blockbuster entertainment it was made around the world I don't, elegance, it, it depends on I, I think for that kind of stuff also what kind of cameras they might have been using you know I don't know I, I would have guessed this would have been shot on 35 but this could have been shot on 70 it might have been I think, I think Spy Who Loved so. Me was because uh, Ken Adams I believe did the production design who was working with uh, Kubrick on those big sets he would use and yeah they may have had them. too big of a camera to move it around too much you know because right. it does have a lot of locked off shots even for, and for 79 that's not uncommon i guess because it's still something from the era before but yeah they had definitely were making smaller cameras at the time yeah, this is the first bond movie where bond goes to california i mean then he goes he, he goes back uh it was always strange to me because he due to a kill he goes right back to and you know fights zorn in silicon valley here uh, and, but it's just great when he first shows up. You go, oh, you're finally coming to California after all these years, Mr. Bond. Where have you been? It seems like such a mm-hmm. natural fit. Come <laughs> on now. But you mentioned the music, and John Barry here, um, who obviously shares the same initials as our hero, delivers the best score of the series, I think, like the most majestic, perhaps. Uh, mm-hmm. It's also his peak, and I think he elected to sit out the following year on, or the following adventure on For Your Eyes Only, because he had nothing new to add. Uh, and he came back with uh, a, the Living Daylights, which was his last one. And Bill Conti, as much as I love the guy with the Rocky and, and Karate Kid scores, he's just not very well adapted doing Bond. And Michael Kamen, his Bond for License to Kill sounds a lot like Little Weapon. And nobody has mm-hmm. that very sound. Don't you think that this is just a, a beautifully put together score? It's so necessary that this score is big for such a big movie like it fits perfectly and it really fills in the gaps um you know and it, it i think in a lot of cases uh, scores like this can make movies seem more relevant today um, or keep the relevance you know like they they don't even with the cheap uh, special effects and and the visuals and things uh, it might not look exactly right you know because of 
whatever process they were using uh, back then, but the score will just flow right over all that, you know, and, and we'll, um, I wish that they still did scores like this. I wish they still did big scores, you know, memorable scores. I can't yeah. really tell you, I can't hum you a theme, but you know, when I was a kid, I would hum the theme to a movie as I was like playing with my guys because my action figures, cause that's what the, the movie sounded like. I can't even tell you a theme to a movie from this year. Can you? Can you hum me the Avengers theme? No, but we're also not nine, so that's probably a good thing. There was no Avengers movie this year. So. <laughs> Just an Avengers theme in general, like the theme to the no, Avengers. No, there is a theme, but I don't of know. Of course, what it there is. is. I mean, I, you, um, people can do the Wonder Woman one because it's like the most obnoxious, like weird sound you've ever heard on an electric guitar. But yeah, she has a, a little bit more of a one, but the rest of the score is practically non-existent. Right, it's background. It's it's background to sound effects, which this is absolutely not. Yeah, uh, a couple of observations here. I did find it very odd in this sequence in the movie here, where uh, Bond dresses like a cowboy for another reason than to serve as like a nod to Clint Eastwood's westerns of that era as well. Yeah, <laughs> what was that whole sequence for? I it's just, don't he's gonna go to space, know. put him in cowboy. Yeah, but he, there's no reason for him to be like that. And, and secondly, I think that's <laughs> on a story-wise or like sequence-wise, my favorite is the gondola chase in Venice because it's so emblematic mm. of the of the bonds of Moore's era because it's like it's so fun and lightweight but yet like nicely executed with a little joke at the end like, almost like a cartoon it's like I'll be back you know what I mean like yeah. everyone's like maybe you're not dead but you're just like <laughs> yeah. uh, cast away for the moment and there's right. a lot of great things and when he gets when he takes the boat on land it's almost like the movie knows it's ridiculous it knows it's being fun and it's just kind of telling you yes this is stupid but it's fun enjoy it you know we we are <laughs> well I, I think that it's also pretty heavy story-wise because drag's plan has biblical aspirations oh, yeah. in shades of, of hitler's master race plan you know so there's all mm -hmm. these weird things going on there that are being thrown that gets at you. paid off so well with jaws uh, in the end there as well because Jaws has his Frankenstein moment, you know, the little romance there, the brighter Frankenstein, even, you, you know, like his, I just want to pet the rabbits, George type, you know, <laughs> Lenny, you know, it's like, a mice and, it's like he has like the thing he loves and the thing he cherishes. And mm -hmm. I also love that the Russian counterpoint makes his appearance in this movie. The Russian general was the Gogol that they're always in contact with throughout Spy Who Loves Me up to, I believe, Octopussy. There's three or four films here where he's, in his counterpart over there and i like that he's in this movie for no other reason for them just to kind of throw him in yeah. there you know <laughs> just to just to have another appearance yeah. by him um, but you're right i think the nicest touch in this movie is that jaws gets his semi-hero moment and is given the, the the little nod that he is human and, and has a heart too and somebody finds him lovable that's just a feel-good ending it, it really <laughs> is and i it sounds stupid and it really kind of is dumb. There's nothing intelligent necessarily about it. But it, as I said, it is set up and paid off well. You know, I do like how Bond asking Jaws, where will your place be in this new world? And Jaws realizing, you know, there probably is no place for him. He's a freak, just like uh, the woman he fell in love with. But she kind of gives him that extra that extra little bit of uh, of courage and I guess want to continue living you know to have to care not, not that he wouldn't normally but you know what i mean self-esteem as well yeah self-respect the whole nine I mean, he's not someone's puppet mm -hmm. uh because he says jaws killer you know he tells him whatever to do there right. he gives him a command like a dog would 
uh, and it's, it's, it's a nice moment. And it shows that Jaws actually can think. He's not just a machine that does what he's told, not just a, a Terminator, if you will. So he, he has a moment where he has self-realization and, and the whole thing. It's just a great moment in the movie. It's, well, it's, it's well, well written, too. It is, but it's also just kind of a funny, it's kind of like Wile E. Coyote chasing the, the Roadrunner, right? The whole time Jaws is trying to kill James Bond, it's almost like they're playing with each other in some way. Like, they're not really enemies. They're they're just kind of doing what they do, being who they are. This is the Bond movie that I probably saw the most in my life because my parents, remember hmm. when they had the releases over the years on VHS? There was the one that had the cover that opened up a little bit of trivia. It was yeah. Like the, the VHS collection, I think it was from the early 90s. And my parents came home one day with Moonraker. I don't know what possessed them to buy that, <laughs> of all things, but we had it in our collection. So I saw this many, many times, and it was always very slow and kind of laborious to get through, especially compared to the ones that would come after it. Is. It's definitely and a 70s movie. It really is, in, in a lot of, in the dress and mannerisms and everything. Mm-hmm. But now, as an, as an older man... Yeah. Uh, I really, <laughs> really, really am glad we went back and looked at this because uh, I, I enjoyed the shit out of it. It made me want to go back and watch more of these, but also not because I didn't want to ruin the affection I all of a sudden got. <laughs> again, you know, know what I mean? It's kind right? of precious again. Yeah. A lot of these aren't really that good. So, so you glad you went um, back and looked at this though? Yeah, I'm really, really happy, especially, uh, I mean, like I said to you, uh, as I'd watched it, I sent you a text that this may be the, the funnest, uh, movie I've seen all year. And uh, I kind of agree with that. Even, even though, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy two is great and there's a lot of fun movies and good movies that came out this year. This is, I think the funnest time I had watching a movie this year. It's one of the funnest times I had. I mean, I will say that because this is so was so lightweight, airy, and I, I don't want to say feel good, but I just kind of left feel. And it has one of the best closeout lines ever <laughs> in a Bond movie when he when they cut to them. I love that. And they say, yes. "Oh, sir, I think he's attempting reentry." <laughs> one of the best, you know, like just you just want uh-huh. somebody to just be like da dun ding, you know, like just beautifully done. And then she asks him to take her around the world again. But I mean, that yeah. one is just a priceless line. Well done. I think that they didn't leave any st- stone left unturned here in terms of this film and uh, what they had accomplished with this concept. So for me, it was a great rewatch. And it uh, sounds like you had a good time watching this, too. I hope you guys go back and give this a shot, too, if you're in the mood for looking at some of the fun James Bond films. Thank you guys for joining us on our 17th look back on these retros. We had a good time doing it. We'll be back with you next week with an all-new episode of the Movie Mavericks podcast. Speaking for Trevor Anderson, I am Jason Rugard, and we are the Movie Mavericks. Take me around the world one more time.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.